right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. That. We don't got time that. Right? Let's go. Crank it. Crank it. Let it cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. What's going on? Welcome into another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk here on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Scott Chasen of Fog.net is going to join us in about 35 minutes from right now. Talk a little KU football we also got some audio from Andy Kotelnicki and Brian Borland to play for you today, the offensive and defensive coordinators for KU. Sidewalk sale is going on in uh, downtown Lawrence at Mastery. Also, Taste of Lawrence tonight. It is bonkers downtown in Lawrence. I was walking around earlier and, you know, checking out some of the stuff and some of the businesses. And it was funny. I was walking around this one area, and I, I, I won't name names, but it's, in a, uh, it's like a KU apparel shop. And all these other businesses were like out front having the sidewalk sale friendly talk to and everything. And then it was just like, it, it was like just bah humbug with Christmas and <laughs> the one store, just like nothing was going on. And it was kind of interesting uh, to look out for. Anyway, in sports news, Dennis Dodd tweeted this. You may have missed this, which I did as well. I don't know when it happened. Big 12's conference expansion may only be the first round in a larger expansion for the league, according to Texas Tech Athletic Director Kirby Hocutt. Now, we talked about yesterday the fact that Cincinnati had basically put their request through to join the Big 12. Um, UCF yesterday afternoon during the show announced the same thing. And on Tuesday, you got one of the other schools who said they're going to join. So it's slowly moving along. It sounds like the big 12 is going to have a press conference tomorrow. It sounds like the big 12 is going to put a vote to this tomorrow. All the schools have to vote for it except for Texas and Oklahoma, because you need eight out of 10 to vote for it. And assuming Texas and Oklahoma won't vote for it, you need everybody else to be with a consensus vote on it. Um, But this only being the first round, of conference expansion, I think it could mean a couple things to me. One, they're either expecting other schools to leave, and maybe it's not even expecting schools to leave. Maybe it's this is our backup in case other schools leave, right? Like, for all they know, maybe they think West Virginia is going to go to the ACC. Maybe they think KU is going to leave. Maybe they think so-and-so, whatever. Maybe that would be a reason for this to only be the first round as opposed to that's all that's going to happen in terms of expansion. But the number two thing, and this is probably the most likely, they're just wanting to fortify themselves in as much numbers as possible right now, or as many numbers as possible right now, since you won't have OU or Texas to help at the top. I talked about this yesterday, that you're almost looking for somebody to emerge because depth-wise, the strength of the league overall, you are right there with the Pac-12 and the ACC. I mean, you're probably better you know, schools, whatever, two through eight or something like that, then maybe those conferences are. But the difference is when USC is right, they're a consistent 
national title contender. When Clemson is right, they are a consistent national title contender. Same for Florida State or, or Miami in the ACC. I mean, Oregon, maybe not to that level, but they are a consistent college football playoff contender. And you don't really have that as much without OU and Texas. Like, OU is in it every year. You don't have that with the new iteration of the Big 12. Maybe somebody fills those shoes without them, right? Like, maybe Oklahoma State or TCU, who have been so good in this conference, just not as good as OU. Maybe without OU there to roadblock them, they become the new OU. And how Nebraska dominated the Big 8 in football or you know, how Miami dominated the old Big East in football, eventually that happens and somebody does stick out. So the more numbers, the more teams you add, you're kind of throwing darts with your your eyes closed and hoping that one comes up in the bullseye. And it also, beyond that, you're almost at a point where because you don't have the top-tier school, your strength is about strength and numbers. And... You want to be built to withstand another loss of any schools, if that ever does happen, better than you currently are with losing OU in Texas. It's really not a bad strategy. I'd imagine if they're going to add more schools, Memphis, Colorado State, Air Force, Boise State, USF, Tulane, SMU, San Diego State, those are all ones that we've heard brought up before. Uh, I'm sure those ones and, and many others would get brought up again. But I would also imagine that that second round of expansion, like maybe this round, it sounds like they'd want it to be in the summer of 2023. Maybe that second round comes in 2025 when the media rights are up. And that's when you're making even more movements. This is RCST on KLWN. Jason Bean mixed results in his first career start for KU against South Dakota. KU just couldn't really move the ball early in the game. And as much as that was about the lack of running game for KU and inability to get much ground through the ground game, it wasn't a perfect game for Jason Bean either. But what he did is he had a couple good drives. He had a couple touchdown throws. He didn't turn the ball over, and he came up clutch when you need him to. And that is a big part of what quarterbacks are judged on. Did you put yourself in good winning positions? Did you make the key plays when you need to? Did you make the game-winning drive at the end? And he did those things to his credit. So things to improve, but overall, I think you come away pretty pleased with the performance that Jason Bean had for KU. And he had over 160 passing yards. He had over 50 rushing yards. Since 2010, Jason Bean is just one of three KU quarterbacks with 150 or more passing yards and 50 or more rushing yards in a game. Just one of three quarterbacks. The other two are Carter Stanley twice and Montel Cozart once. He already has that under his belt in his first career game. That's only happened three times in the past 11 years. And only being on Friday and then Stanley against Texas in that game down in Austin in 2019 achieved both of those, 150 passing, 50 on the ground, while not throwing an interception. So you're in rarefied company. And 150 passing yards, 50 rushing yards, you know, that's not like, you know, that's not Heisman numbers. That's not necessarily all-conference numbers. If you did that every game, you'd end up with 1,800 passing yards, 600 rushing yards, which would be a good season, especially for the KU quarterback. But, again, it's not like, oh, you have a top-five quarterback in the Big 12 with those numbers necessarily. 
but that's only happened one other time for KU in the past decade plus without throwing an interception. And that is kind of where we were at coming into the year. It was, well, can you just, instead of being by far the worst quarterback in the Big 12, can you just move up to Big 12 caliber where the next worst team in the Big 12 is right in line with you? And if you do pass anybody, that's the cherry on top. That's kind of what we saw from Jason Bean in game one. It was against an FCS opponent. We'll have to wait and see. Still 11 games to kind of build that resume, and we, we don't know how you're going to react to starting this Friday against a team who's ranked in the top 25, and that is a big question. But I think you passed the test right off the bat. Here's Lance Leipold talking about his quarterback, Jason Bean. The thing about Jason is he's, he's not very outspoken. <laughs> he doesn't get it too emotional either either way so that you know though at times we like him to to maybe be a little more vocal he doesn't let um you know when things haven't gone his way you don't see a big change in body language either so i, I maybe that's part of what they, he's referring to that he hasn't let that bother him i think uh you know when when jalen was limited in some things and and he was able to get get some more reps in some things. I think he really took off in his confidence and understanding through that. I think that really helped him kind of, you know, probably, uh, I don't want to say take command, but but be the guy that that we were going to go to. And I, I thought he showed some flashes um, percentage-wise. I mean, he created, you know, a big fourth down conversion when we needed to. Some, you know, for us to score right before the first half and then score late in the game again to win. I think shows composure and, and, and a chance to make plays. He showed, I think he shows flashes of what he can do as a ball carrier. Um, but, uh, you know, I think he would also be one to admit that he's got to, you know, we got to clean a lot of things up and, and hopefully he's going to take a big step here in uh, game two. And so the question that I have now for Jason Bean is can he be as good as Carter Stanley was for your offense in 2019? Now, the 2019 offense was probably a little more tailored to opening things up for a quarterback and for better statistics from the quarterback. So I don't necessarily even mean from that standpoint, but, you know, just as, as pivotal to the offense. And again, that 2019 team, you had Puka Williams, you had, at least for a little bit, Khalil Herbert in the backfield. You had on the outside, Stephon Robinson, who's now at Northwestern, Andrew Parchment caught a touchdown for Florida State last week. I mean, you had weapons on that team, and Kwame Lasseter was on that team too. Dalen Charlotte. That team had some good weapons on the outside that you don't quite have this season. But here's why that would be really beneficial if he was even just as good as Carter Stanley was in 2019. First of all, Carter Stanley was the best quarterback season that you had since Todd Reason. You saw flashes from, like, Michael Cummings, but it was short-lived. It wasn't an overly large sample size. Carter Stanley had the best QB season for KU in 2019 since Todd Reesing. So if you can be that good, that's kind of the bar here of late. And by being the best QB KU had in the past decade plus, Carter Stanley, this goes back in line with it. You don't necessarily have to be the best quarterback, an all big 12 player, a top five quarterback in the league. Just be in line with your peers just be a little better than one or two teams. And Carter Stanley ranked eighth in 2019 in total QBR, which just jumping from having the worst at the position to in line with the other Big 12 teams, let alone above a couple, made you so much more competitive. 
So that is why that would be a good thing if Jason Bean could hit that mark. And then you add to it the fact that unlike Carter Stanley, who was in his final season that year in 2019, Jason Bean still has, I I don't know, technically he's listed as a junior, but last year doesn't count because of the COVID year. So I think technically you could get another couple years out of him. At the very least, you'd have next year out of him, but I, I still think you'd be able to get another year after that. You'd be establishing that guy with still room to grow moving forward. We're still more years ahead of you that you don't get reset back into the, okay, we're back to square one. Who's our quarterback this year? Now, at the very least, Bean should be better than what you got from the position a season ago. And that's not all the quarterback's fault last year. The offensive line didn't do him any favors. But you only had one quarterback game in 2020 where one of your quarterbacks had two passing touchdowns in a single game. Miles Kendrick did it in the opener a season ago against Coastal Carolina. He did it one time all season. Bean already matched that in the opener. You only got three quarterback games all season long where you had more passing yards last season in an individual game from one guy than Jason Bean's 163 yards on Friday. You only had two quarterback games a season ago where the quarterback, with a minimum of 15 passes thrown, threw no interceptions. Bean already has one. You had zero quarterback games with 50 or more rushing yards from the quarterback. In fact, if if I were to quiz you right now, this would be, I guess, a little uh, early teaser. We've, we floated the idea of possibly doing RCST Trivia Football Edition. Here's a good one. Who, what KU football quarterback led the team or led all quarterbacks in rushing yards in 2020? The answer is Thomas McVitie, who led all Kansas quarterbacks in rushing yards with 39 yards a season ago. For the season, 39 yards. Jason Bean had over 50 yards in the first game. So what you got from Jason Bean in game one while not necessarily a telltale sign that it's always going to be that great every game. In fact, it won't be. But that was basically the height of what you got from KU quarterbacks last year, and you got pretty much more than that in a lot of senses for Jason Bean right away in game one. You see the potential is there a lot more than you had last year. And it's still not a guarantee that we don't see, you know, Jalen Daniels or Miles Kendrick this year or that Bean makes it through the year as the full-time starter. But if those guys do beat out Bean or if he struggles at some point and those guys take over, it just still seems likely to me that KU will be getting more from that quarterback position than last season. And yes, there's going to be games where Jason Bean might have a really bad performance against a good defense. He has a bad day. This isn't going to be a perfect ride. But that's the thing with that 2019 season with Carter Stanley. You had hiccups that year, too. It's easy to think back and think, wow, it was really good against Texas. And you think about some of the best games that you might have had that season, Texas Tech. There were big hiccups. I mean, the Coastal Carolina game was not a great game for Carter Stanley. The TCU game was not a great game for Carter Stanley. There are going to be hiccups over the course of the long season. You're not asking the guy to be the Heisman winner where 
You got to be great every day. So now, I think the game plan for Friday specifically, and ideally moving forward with what you want to do on offense, it's not going to be fully dependent on the QB play. It's not going to be fully dependent on what Jason Bean does in this offense. I mean, Leipold on Hawk Talk said they're going to try to control the clock and, and keep the ball out of Coastal Carolina's hands on Friday. You have to run the ball well, obviously, to do that. And it's not going to be dependent on Jason Bean. And this isn't the worst matchup either for him. Coastal Carolina ranks 63rd in defensive efficiency by ESPN SB+. We've seen him have fast D linemen in the past that have wrecked KU's offensive line, and that's a concern, but I'm sure his mobility helps you a little bit in that regard. But overall, the question becomes, if what you get out of Bean can be as good or better as 2019 Carter Stanley, because that's the benchmark right now, that was your last non-worst quarterback in the Big 12 in the past decade. And that was good enough to be more than competitive in the conference. You won three games. You probably should have won four, five, maybe even six that year. That's what that difference in quarterback play did, which, yes, it was helped by the guys around him. But Carter Stanley also did a pretty valiant job at the quarterback position for KU that year. And that is what Jason Bean, if he could live up to that 2019 Carter Stanley year, which I think he already did in game one, then all of a sudden it changes the outlook of this team. It changes the outlook of, is it just going to be a one-win team or is it going to be one that wins two or three games and they're competitive in a couple other games? Because that's on the table if Jason Bean can do just that. And you had a good first start, especially compared to what you got from that position a season ago. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Scott Chasen of 24-7 Sports, Fog.net, joins us in about 20 minutes. Welcome back. Rock Chalk Sports Talk here on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Scott Chasen of 24-7 Sports, Fog.net, joins us now on the show. A close week one victory for KU over South Dakota, 17-14 to for KU. Do you come out of the game, Scott, feeling more optimistic about the team, less optimistic about the team, or about the same? Um, I think it's funny. My answer is both more and less optimistic, but it is assuredly not the same because <laughs> uh, I thought Kansas in some ways was going to be more impressive. I was really curious to see uh, what the run game would look like. And look, I understand football is a game of schematics. And if one guy screws up, like Lance Leipold says, uh, you know, that's going to make a play look poorly. But at times you should be able to just kind of overwhelm another team. I thought that was the, the big disappointment for KU in game one. Um, you know, this is an insta- uh, insane statistic that, I mean, people probably know at this point. But if you take away the first play of the game, just the first play, Kansas's running backs averaged fewer than one yard per carry, which is just absolutely insane. I mean, it was a seven-yard rush. And without that, they were below one yard per carry, which is, uh, you know, obviously atrocious. Now, uh, I think there were some things that you can take away. Um, I think defensively, most of them come on the defensive side of the ball. A few of them I'd probably come with the the wide receivers unit. And I thought KU did some nice things pass blocking. But there are about three or four areas that have to be dramatically better, um, including the quarterback. You know, I thought Jason Bean did some good things, but 
Um, at the same time, I mean, Kansas scored 17 points in that game, uh, including a game-winning touchdown drive. Kansas went three and out four times to start the game. Uh, at times, he was inaccurate. At times, he wasn't finding open guys. At times, uh, he was completing passes and still missing open guys. So I think he was good, but I think there's a ton of room to get better from that, um, you know, uh, just to, to start putting him in the tier of, you know, okay, Big 12 quarterback, like you've got a guy who's good enough. So um, I think there's a lot to clean up, but at the same time, uh, really impressed with the defense, really impressed with the secondary, save for a few plays. Um, and I thought, you know, just getting that first game out of the way with a win, I think that's a big deal for this staff. Um, I think going winless two years in a row would have been really hard for them to deal with, so I think that was a really important win for the program. From what we judge coaches on on game day, with, you know, game management, use of timeouts, challenges, game plan, uh, lack of penalties, I guess, is another one. Uh, just from how you thought the game was coached and, and game management of that nature, how would you grade the first performance for this new staff? Uh, not well. Um, and, and I wouldn't assign a letter, a grade, or a number to it because I, I don't think it would be fair from the perspective of it's probably more forgivable to have to burn some extra timeouts and things because there isn't that, you know, continuity of this staff has been in place and even in place longer than, the, you know, summer and fall. So, you know, I'm not going to ding them too much for that stuff. But um, if this were the case, if, if that were the way the game was managed in week five, week seven, week 10, you know, you'd be, you'd be saying this is the Beatty era all over again, just from that very singular specific you know, perspective. Obviously, I think there are a ton of differences between those two staffs that will make this staff much more successful. But yeah, I I think it's more forgivable because it's game one. But I mean, you look at seven penalties, you look at burn timeouts that didn't need to be taken. You obviously, the the non-challenge was a big mistake. And I understand why Lance Leifold didn't want to use that timeout. Um, You know, I I saw someone on Twitter say regarding that play that like hindsight is 2020. I was like, what hindsight? Every single person in the world, including the announcers for the game, uh, including fans on Twitter, everyone was saying uh, this is a no-brainer challenge. And, it, again, it's the kind of challenge that even if you do lose the timeout, I mean, at the time, think about what was going on at the time. I think K was clinging to, uh, I want to say, a four, a three, three-point lead. Yeah, um, you know, obviously it was a it was fourth. Uh, it was a fourth and one. It was a huge play in the fourth quarter. Like that's when you use that timeout. That timeout is more valuable than anything else you're going to get out of it. And who knows? Maybe even just a long stoppage for a review gives the KU defense time to catch its breath, and it doesn't give up a touchdown like three plays later. You know, you, you just don't know. So um, again, I, I think that was probably more of a game one thing than a Lance Leipold staff thing. Um, and I would expect that to probably all improve, maybe, you know, across the board uh, here in the coming weeks. How translatable do you think the front seven and, and that defensive line is? Because they were really good in the game. I was a little surprised with how good I thought they played on first watch when I looked at the stats and saw, oh, they only had four tackles for loss and only had one sack. It felt like there was there was more than that. How translatable is that? what you think they did against South Dakota for moving forward, not just this week against Coastal Carolina, but the rest of the season? Well, I think extremely. Now, you know, obviously South Dakota is not going to, you know, they don't have the best offensive line Kansas is going to face, and I'm, I'm not sure, you know, maybe you don't get that same pressure against Oklahoma or whatever. But the things the Jayhawks did to get pressure in coverage, I mean, those things, uh, they'll be the same against a lot of opponents. You know, Kyron Johnson is faster than any defensive lineman that any Big 12 program will face this year. Uh, I don't care if he's playing, 
you know, against South Dakota. I don't care if he's playing against Oklahoma, whatever. Like, that tackle is going to have to find a way to deal with a defensive lineman who's really a linebacker who at one point was running a 4-3-40. So, like, I think that kind of stuff, Malcolm Lee, I think his instincts have gotten so much better. I think the play of linebackers, some of them at least, like Gavin Potter, um, he showed better kind of recognition and understanding of the defense, which I thought was important. Um, I think the cover corners will only do better, especially the young ones, as the season goes on. And I would love to see guys like Jeremy Webb more and more uh, because I thought he had a really good uh, first game, including a stop on a fourth down that I believe went uncredited. Um, I think they ended up crediting it to someone else. Sometimes it's just like the last guy to stand up or at the bottom of the pile ends up getting credit for the tackle. Uh, But Jeremy Webb was actually the guy who made the fourth down tackle, which I thought uh, was pretty impressive for a cornerback. So um, I do think those things translate a lot. That doesn't mean they'll be as effective. But uh, I really like what I saw, and I, I like what I saw from the young players, and I think that's really important, too, because, you know, it's not like seniors stop improving, but I think you see, you know, you've talked about, you know, exponential improvement, or, you know, you've specifically mentioned that with the coaching staff, right, and said if you have fewer days with them, each day is more important than maybe at another place where you've had more days with them. Well, I feel the same way about young players, guys like Caleb Taylor, Keenan Caldwell, uh, that those guys are going to improve kind of exponentially, um, and if they're already kind of standing out early in the year, I think that's a great sign for KU. All right, so better chance at a win. If I gave you two different two-game sets, Coastal Carolina plus Texas Tech or Duke plus West Virginia, what do you think is a better chance? Well, I think Duke and West Virginia is, is the best because I think Duke is the most winnable game remaining on the schedule. Um, even though, kind of like you, I, I'm convinced this Coastal Carolina game will be a little bit closer. I do. I think Kansas loses. I'm just you know, predicting a loss in like the 14, 17, 20 range as compared to the, you know, 25, 28, 30 range, which is closer to the line. But uh, I don't think Duke is a good team. I think Duke obviously had its own week one struggles. Uh, That's the thing, you know, Kansas beat an FCS team and people were like, um, you know, I, I say people like the, the Twitterverse or whatnot was like, wow, that's, you know, how not impressive Kansas struggled with an FCS team. And it's like, you know, people lose actually to FCS teams <laughs> and people have bad losses in week one. And sometimes they actually don't win games. Um, so I, you know, I wouldn't discount that, but uh, I think Duke is a very beatable team. I think just the, probably a, a hair above Kansas, um, which is, you know, as good as you can get if you're Kansas playing a power five team. And the West Virginia game is so intriguing just because it's the last game of the year. I mean, look, West Virginia has no excuse to lose that game. West Virginia starts the year better than Kansas, and West Virginia should end the year better than Kansas. But again, you talk about exponential improvement and the chance for Kansas to go through an entire season learning more and more, and that should kind of culminate with you know the best performance of the year in the final game. It's a home game, uh, which I think is important too. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I would say probably the combination of Duke-West Virginia, but and Derek, I've said this on your show before. I will say it again, and I'll say it, um, I guess, to anyone who wants to talk to me over the next 24-ish hours. Uh, I, I would be surprised if Coastal Carolina were 35 points better uh, than Kansas. I, I don't see it being that way because at the end of the day, and I'm, I'm actually echoing something Matt Tate said on your show just the other day, Like there is something to be said for having Power 5 players against a team who largely doesn't. They have a quarterback who definitely is. They definitely have some guys who are that quality. But this is a roster of players who are recruited at a Power 5 level. So even if there is a massive continuity disadvantage or um, you know, coaching comfort and familiarity disadvantage, just timing-wise, stuff like that, 
I mean, you should be able to do some things, and I think that's what Kansas has to kind of do. You know, it's okay to lose this game. Coastal Carolina is ranked. Coastal Carolina is good. But don't lose it by 40. You know, find a way to lose it by 14 or so, and I think people will be happy. Yeah, I I think if the running game looks like it did against South Dakota, I think you could get 30 or 40 pieced in this game. I I don't think it's going to look that bad, though. Like, it's not going to be, you know, peak what it is by the middle of the season or end of the season or next year with the new staff in there, but I expect it to look better than it did week one. And yeah, every, everything you were just alluding to, I just, I can't get out of my mind. The fact that yes, they destroyed you in the first half last year, but overall for the game, they only beat you by 15. You could have had an onside kick at the end there. You were minus three in turnovers. You have in theory, a better staff now to manage the game and make adjustments throughout the game. I, like I said yesterday, I'm not saying KU is going to win. I don't even know yeah. if it'll be a single-digit game, but I kind of think it'll be competitive. I, I think it'll be, you know, if you gave me a spread 21 points or higher, I would take it absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, look, uh, you go back to last year's game, it wasn't just the turnover margin. It was how those turnovers happened, right? L.J. Arnold tipped a ball up mm-hmm. that was catchable that ended up being picked off. Uh, there was a fumble where I think on a wide receiver screen, either one of the wide receivers blocked a player yeah. into his, into the Kansas guy, or he just completely didn't block. I, I can't totally remember, but I remember that two, the first two turnovers of that game were completely avoidable. Uh, and they were, it, it wasn't even like, oh, that's bad technique or bad coaching. It was like, oh, that's a freak play. That'll never happen again. And I also think, you know, Kansas was, it was a quote unquote home game. Um, but it was the first game of the COVID era. Kansas obviously didn't have a spring. Coastal Carolina had an entire spring. Um, and even though Kansas didn't have a spring with its current coaching staff, uh, I asked Lance Leifold about that. And what he said, he was like, well, they did have a spring with, with some people. So, um, yeah, again, I'm not picking Kansas to be Coastal Carolina because I'm not a crazy person. Um, but I, I do think, you know, a, a game within the, the 14 to 20 point range, I think that's very doable for Kansas, which, um, you know, considering what Coastal Carolina is and how good Coastal Carolina was last year, especially the quarterback spot, how they looked game one, I think um, that's a lot of respect to the opponent. But, yeah, I mean, I was very surprised when the line opened at 27 and a half. Um, I think I've seen it bet down to 25 already, which makes a, a little bit more sense to me. Um, to me, if you gave me the number like 23, I still would probably pick Kansas to cover that line. But again, you know, I'm not picking Kansas to win. I, I just think it'll be a little bit more reasonable, uh, particularly because, uh, quite frankly, the talent between the two sides, because the Carolina is talented and has great talent at some important positions. Uh, but Kansas, again, has a roster of of power five players. And I think just like in last year's game, after that disastrous start, when Kansas settled in, Kansas dominated the game from that point on. They just didn't have time to make up for the mistakes that they largely inflicted on themselves, uh, you know, in the first two or three possessions of the game. Yeah. They didn't lose the game. They just ran out of time. We hear that. Quote. <laughs> but um, in all reality, we're talking with Scott. Quote? <laughs> I don't know. I feel like that's been used a lot by many different many different coaches and many different fans. Uh, we're talking with Scott Jason, Fog.net, 24-7 Sports. Uh, Scott, uh, with the running back situation specifically, we didn't see Devin Neal much. I think he just had one carry in the first game. Um, I know the coaches have talked about this as to the reason why and that they wanted to establish guys with certain rhythm. I don't know what the status of Amori Pesek-Hickson is going to be. It sounded like he was practicing this week, but Lance Leipold on Hawk Talk said he's still going to be kind of week-to-week, day-to-day. Are you expecting a more balanced running approach, though, for KU here in game number two than what we saw in game one? 
I really don't know, and I think a lot of it depends on how can you know if Kansas gets behind twenty-one to nothing and they feel like they have to throw, um, then I would expect to see a lot of Tory Lachlan just because uh, I thought he was better as a blocker. You know, thanks to you for sharing some pro football focus information with me for a story I was working on. But uh, Tory Lachlan did not grade out exceptionally uh, as a blocker, and yet uh, on the final drive of the game, and I wrote about this yesterday. Uh, he made two blocks that were absolutely massive. The first uh, was a pickup of a blitz where he just kind of stood in and did his job. And the second, he went out to, to catch a pass. Uh, Jason Bean kind of, you know, the things broke down the pocket. Jason Bean wanted to run, and he found a guy to pick up. He blocked him, created a running lane for Bean, uh, who ended up getting hit. Would have had a, a four- or five-yard gain on third down, which was important. Uh, but instead, you know, drew that, that targeting penalty. And again, um, uh, something I noticed, Actually, also uh, on top of that play was being lost the ball at the end of the play, and Tory Lachlan was the first player on the field to dive on it. And so I think he does a lot of things that this staff maybe recognizes uh, have value that, you know, maybe you don't know where Devin Neal's blocking is yet. Maybe you didn't like Belton uh, Gardner's blocking in the first game. Certainly Pro Football Focus didn't. So um, from that perspective, yeah, I guess it kind of depends on game situations. I will say I expect Devin Neal to play more. Uh, look, I think Velton Gardner is a good running back. I think he has great open field ability. Um, but I actually tweeted this. Uh, he kind of reminds me of Taylor Martin uh, and not in a good way. Uh, <laughs> Taylor Martin was a Kansas running back with a lot of talent. But he kind of played, um, uh, you know, uh, what's the thing called where they count your steps? It's not It's not an odometer. It's a pedometer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he kind of plays like you're, you're measuring with the pedometer and not the odometer. And I, I think that was the problem kind of that he would, you know, he'd, he'd kind of bounce around and hesitate and take these steps and go backward and left and right and whatever. And what, you know, you, at some point you need to get north-south. Uh, and I think that was a problem Dalton Gardner had in the first game. Now, maybe that'll improve. Maybe that'll look better. Maybe the line will, will make him feel more comfortable. Maybe they'll play better. Uh, but I think Devin Neal, you know, he's got that ability to just north-south, and if I'm going to get tackled, that's great, but I'm going to fall forward for three yards. And I think that the KU staff would definitely take that, uh, given what you know took place the last game. Like I mentioned, one yard per carry after the first play of the game. All right, let's play a quick guessing game then. Who is going to lead KU in rushing yards at the end of the season? Man, I, I want to say Amari Pesek-Hickson, which is the, the unfortunate <laughs> one, because I don't know uh, how long he's going to be out. But um, I think what he can do, he's kind of like the best of all worlds right now. But it would not shock me if it were like Amari Pesek-Hickson followed by Devin Neal and like a close race and Belton Gardner right with him, you know, where it's something like 400, 300, 300 or something like that. Um, and, and you've got all three guys kind of right in the same tier. But um, if healthy, I, I actually think Amari Pesikixen would be the guy. Um, if he's not healthy, if that continues to be a problem this year, you know, I, I'll still say Devin Neal. I know he only got, what, a carry for a yard or something like that in the last game. But I think at some point the, the promise and potential is there. And, and I think this Kansas staff will adjust if, you know, the running scheme, if it doesn't get better with Felton Gardner. No, I think he'll have a great chance to make it better. Um, but at the same time, I think you want to give your most talented players the chance to get on the field. And I think Devin Neal certainly, uh, you know, qualifies as that. Okay, and if that is the case, you mentioned like 400, 400, 300. Jason Bean is going to be the team's leading rusher if that's what you're getting from the running backs, right? Oh, that's a good point. You know, I hadn't even considered that. He certainly was the leading rusher in the first game and I guess on pace for a little bit over, what, 600 yards. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's also certainly a possibility. Now, I will say, um, I don't think Kansas wants Jason Bean running as much, and I think that's evident because when you ask Jason Bean about running, boy, does he like to tell you that he is a 
sit in the pocket and throw it for a quarterback, <laughs> which for the record, I think he can do, and I think he can do well. But, you know, let's also not forget that, that what makes him special, what makes him stand out uh, from so many others, especially, you know, guys that have either played for Kansas or guys that Kansas maybe would have recruited, uh, is that he does have that elite speed. So um, while he is focused on being a pocket passer, and I certainly respect that, and I think that, you know, probably helps Kansas' ceiling, him not running, you know, 20 times a game and getting banged up, uh, I do think that that part of things, it, it definitely would not shock me if he ends the year. If, if it really is a split kind of running back room the whole season, it would not shock me in the slightest if he leads the team in rushing. He is Scott Chasen. You can check out all his work at 247sportsfog.net. Scott, thank you so much for the time as always, and talk to you next week. Thanks for having me. All right, that was Scott Chasen of 247sportsfog.net. Joins us on Thursdays here on RCST. I'm Derek Johnson. You're listening in on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN, depending on it. You already know that if you need a car wash, you need to go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. They've got all the tools and expertise to keep your car clean, both inside and on the outside. You want it clean inside because if anybody gets in your car, they're not going to want it look like a pigsty. Plus, you're going to want it clean of all those germs. You want it clean on the outside because if you're going to be pulling up in somebody's neighborhood, maybe going to see a friend, they're going to see the outside of your car and go, wow. This guy, he knows what he's doing with his car washes. That's because Tommy's Express Car Wash is going to take care of you. Their wash packages let you pay for the services you want, including Tommy Guard and Body Wax. That's right. Have it looking real spiffy. Wheel cleaning and tire gloss, underbody flush, and spot-free rinse and vacuums as well. If you're like me, you have a dog. I have a golden retriever. She sheds so much. So I need the vacuums at Tommy's Express Car Wash, and boy, do they have them. They do them right. That's wash, rinse, repeat with Tommy's Express Car Wash. And don't forget to download the Tommy Club app today and enjoy endless washing for one low price. That's at Tommy's Express Car Wash. This is RCST, 4 o'clock hour on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Derek Johnson here. Coming up in a little bit, we'll play for you the Andy Kotelnicki audio. We gave you Brian Borland a little earlier on in the show, and we'll give you the offensive side of things with Andy Kotelnicki coming up. We're out early today at 5.30 for Royals pregame coverage. We're out early tomorrow as well. That's out for pregame coverage with KU Coastal Carolina at 5 o'clock. I think Taste of Lawrence is going on downtown if you're looking for something to do right now, but... Let's try to make some people some money. This is our NFL season preview. We're going to go through our team preview, then we'll do our awards preview coming up in the next segment. So last year, if you base this on, you put $100 down on everything, I would have made you $1,500 on these regular season previews. You know, maybe you're a little lighter on what you wanted to bet, and it's $10 a bet, then still would have made you $150. So you're welcome. Now that I've said that, I've jinxed myself that I will lose you money this year, but we're going to have fun doing it. All right, so we're going to go through each division, going to go through some wild cards, predictions for the year, who we like, betting odds, all that good jazz. All right, let's start with the AFC North. In the AFC North, some news today with the Baltimore Ravens. Uh, J.K. Dobbins already out for the year with the torn ACL that he suffered in the preseason. Today at practice, Gus Edwards, the backup running back, tore his ACL out for the season. Marcus Peters, former chief, quarterback, tore his ACL out for the season. Justice Hill, their other backup running back, had torn his ACL out for the season. 
Lots of injuries going on with the Baltimore Ravens, who were the favorite in the AFC North. I haven't seen how that's affected things yet in the division. Cleveland is second, though. I already, even before the news, liked Cleveland in the division. Last season, really good year for the Browns. Their biggest issue defensively was their safety play. Will they go out in free agency and add a good safety? And now offensively, Odell Beckham is back to the fold at the receiver position. Nick Chubb was injured a little bit last year. Maybe now you get a full season out of Nick Chubb. Baker Mayfield, I think, has progressed in his NFL career. He had the really good rookie start, then a down second year. Was better last year. I think he'll be a little bit better, even more so this year. I like Cleveland to win that division. You're getting them at plus odds, too, at plus 150. So I'm taking the Browns there. But that is probably the hardest division to pick between the Ravens, the Browns, and the Steelers. Any three of those realistically could win the division. I wouldn't put any stock into the Bengals winning the division, though. AFC South, you have pretty much a two-horse race between Tennessee and um, Indianapolis. I mean, if you want to believe in the Urban Meyer hype and new quarterback with Trevor Lawrence, it's not a bad bet. Now, typically, on average, there is one team a year who goes from worst in your division to first. And if I am circling the divisions that I think that could be most likely to happen, you know, you look at the standings last year, I don't know. Jacksonville would would definitely be up there in that regard. Um, I'm trying to think. I think the New York Giants might have finished last in their division. And just by that being like kind of a cluster of a division, you could see that happening. But if you go through each division, like in the AFC East, you know, I'm obviously not taking the New York Jets to go from worst to first. They were 2-14 and 14 last year. Like, you know, I, I'm not going to touch that at all. But... Just as far as going through those, Jacksonville might not be the worst one in the world. I can't remember if Jacksonville or Houston had the worst record. I thought it was Jacksonville had the worst record in that division to go from worst to first. And again, it doesn't mean you have to bet it. And if you are making bets, you're not necessarily going to go, okay, I have to choose one of these to make it happen. It's what can I bet on to necessarily make the most money here? Or what is going to give me the best chance at return of profit? And you don't know that's going to be the case, so you might not necessarily take that risk with one team, but it's always fun to pick that one team. So anyway, I'm not going with the Jets. I wouldn't go with the Broncos and the AFC West. You have the Chiefs roadblock in front of you. Even the Chargers should be, should be pretty good. Raiders are typically around 500. Bengals, as I mentioned, I mean, that's steep road to ask of you to get ahead of the Steelers, Ravens, and Browns in that situation. Yeah, Jaguars were the worst team in the AFC South. That's the one I would circle in the AFC, the team with the best chance to finish from worst to first. In the NFC, you know, Eagles still don't think they're going to be any good. 49ers, that would be a really good one. Lions should be even worse. That would not be a good one. Falcons, don't know what to think of that. So the two that you'd probably circle, the 49ers, which that makes a lot of sense just because they've been good in the past, and the um, Jacksonville Jaguars, which we've seen crazier things. But I'm still going to go with the Titans. The Colts, I... I just can't get my arms around what exactly Carson Wentz is going to be. We've seen the height of Carson Wentz. We've seen the depths of Carson Wentz. Tennessee's just been consistent. You had Julio Jones. You help out your pass rush a little bit in the offseason. I'll take the Titans at minus 120. In the AFC East, Buffalo. The Bills are minus 160. They are the favorite. And I'm really tempted. You can get the Patriots. You can get the Dolphins. Both over 2-1 to one into the 3-1 to one territory, depending which one you go with. I'm really tempted to go with one, but I, I don't really know which one to take. I'm going to actually go with Buffalo. 
the biggest issue a season ago with Buffalo was the defense, which is weird because a year before, Buffalo's defense was awesome. And the offense left something to be desired. They fixed the offense. Defense regresses. I think this year, the defense just gets better. And I think it will. You draft some guys, uh, Gregory Rousseau, notably, who we'll get to more on him in the awards section. Had a really good preseason. Could be a really good pass rusher and help you change the defense. And if you had a good pass rusher, that really does change the defense really quickly. You still have some DBs back there, like Jordan Poyer and Tredavious White, to make you think, this defense does have potential to, yes, be a good defense. Maybe it won't get to where it was two years ago, but better than it was a season ago. So I'll go with the Bills to win the AFC East reluctantly at minus 160. And then in the AFC West, you're getting no value here. So I'm tempted to go with the Chargers just based on value, but I'm taking the Chiefs. Minus 275. Like, what are you going to say? Like I said, I understand if you want to make the value pick and say I'll take the Chargers to win the division. Maybe even the Broncos. But, come on. Let's be realistic. And then, because of that, like the number one seed, you can bet on this. You can get the Chiefs a plus 150 to get the one seed in the AFC. So, I'll double down on the Chiefs. Minus 275 to win the West. Plus 150 to get the one seed. As far as the wild cards, first one. I'll stick in the AFC West. I do think the Chargers are going to be really good this year. So, I'll get them at one of the wild card spots. You can get that at plus 220. I'll take the Steelers, or the Stillers, as they call them, as one of the wild cards. You can get them at plus 320 to get a wild card, which I find is very interesting. And, you know, part of if you, you make a bet on somebody to make the wild card game, you're not just assuming that they're going to make the playoffs. It's also you making the bet that they're not going to win the division. You have to kind of middle it there. But I think Cleveland, I have them winning the division. Baltimore, even though... I'm, Spoiler here, I don't have Baltimore in the playoffs anymore. But Baltimore could still very easily win the division. And at that point, the Steelers, as much as they tanked at the end of last year, offensive line running game should be a little bit better for them this season. Defense is still going to be, even if the offense isn't good, again, like last year, defense should still be top five defense in the NFL. They just re-signed TJ Watt and... Mike Tomlin has never finished, I believe, below 500. So they're going to be in that race. And with an extra wild card, you go 9-8, and eight, you go 10-7, and seven, you're probably making the playoffs. And I think the Steelers can do just that. So I'll take them at a wild card. I really like That's my favorite one at plus 320. And then New England at plus 270. Again, with New England, Miami kept going back and forth. I'm just going to trust with Bill Belichick there. You can get them at plus 270 to make the wild card game. Okay, on to the NFC. In the north, I've got the number one seed. And the team winning the North, the Green Bay Packers. Green Bay's minus 160 to win the NFC North. I don't really see a situation where any of the other teams in the North win this division. Lions could be the worst team in football. I mean, it's probably either Lions or Texans, at least on paper, looking at it right now. The Bears are going to start Andy Dalton for a few games, and even then... It's not like they have, like, a great team around them. The defense is still solid, but it's not nearly as good as it was two, three years ago. The Vikings are coming off a bad season a year ago, and I think they'll bounce back a little bit, but I don't think anybody's on the level of what the Packers are. You have a upset, angry Aaron Rodgers, which in the past has turned into some of his best seasons. Devontae Adams in a free agency season. 
I think Green Bay is going to be the number one seed in the NFC. I think Green Bay is going to win this division. So I would take both of those. You can get them to. This is what's crazy. Okay. To win the NFC North minus 160, which is a little worse than even odds. This is the wild one to me. And this is my favorite bet of all these ones. I said Pittsburgh wildcard might be my favorite bet for the AFC. You can get Green Bay at plus 800 to be the one seed in the NFC. I believe they were the one seed this past year, correct? And asking them to do it again at plus 800, whereas the Chiefs are plus 150 to get the one seed. That's insane to me. Uh, as far as the wild cards, I'll take the Rams plus 200. I'm, I'm sorry, I skipped divisions. In the AFC South or NFC South, number two seed, I have Tampa Bay. They're minus 200. I don't really see the competition this year. Usually that division is very tight knit. Saints without. Drew Brees and Jameis Winston, I view that as like somewhere between a 7 to 9 or 10 win team. So I don't think they'll contend with Tampa Bay for the division much. Atlanta, same as it always was for Atlanta the past couple years. Carolina, I think they'll be better than they were last season, but still not really a playoff team. So Tampa very easily minus 200 there. The NFC East, I was tempted to go the New York Giants here, but I'll go with the Dallas Cowboys plus 120. Dak Prescott's back. I think CeeDee Lamb is going to emerge into one of the best receivers in the NFL this year. Their offense is so good that I will take them here and feel comfortable about that. And then in the NFC West, this is the hardest division to pick. Do I go with San Francisco to go worst to first? I'm going to actually go Seattle because if you're looking at, you know, what I think is going to happen, I would go with the Rams or San Francisco over Seattle. But this is an odds play. Both San Francisco... And St. Louis, or wow, the LA Rams are under two to one. So between that plus 100 to plus 200 range to win the division, you can get Seattle at better odds, plus 280. So because I think all of them are kind of close, tighten it together, make the value play, Seattle could still very much win the division, and you're getting way better odds on them than San Francisco or LA. So I'll take Seattle to win that division at plus 280. And then on to those wild cards. I still have the Rams and San Francisco making it. You get the Rams at plus 200 to make the wild card. Niners at plus 180 to make the wild card. Last one I'm going with. This is kind of my surprise in the playoffs. I do have the New York Giants. You can get them to make the wild card at plus 700. I mean, last year, the Bears were the seven seed. They went eight and eight. So if the Giants can go nine and eight, you have a real shot at making the wild card. Now, thought about taking the Vikings. Thought about taking the Bears. Thought about taking the Saints, but you get really good odds on the Giants at 7-1. to one. This is kind of a make-it-or-break-it year for Daniel Jones. Saquon Barkley is back. Year two of the Joe Judge era. I think they're going to take a nice step forward this year. I think this could be one of those teams that, you know, they have the right schedule. Everything lines up. They find a way to go 9-8, and 10-7. and seven. They make the playoffs. Then they get destroyed in the playoffs, and then we don't hear from them in the playoffs for a couple of years, and then they find a new staff, and more upheaval occurs, but we see that every so often, and I think that could be the case with the Giants this season. So I'm going to take a risk on that at 7-1. to one. As far as who I have winning each conference, again, I, I don't know what to do with the Chiefs. There's no value in this. So I'm just going to take Buffalo at plus 550 because there's much better value in that. And then the NFC, Green Bay at 6-1. to one. That's a slam dunk for me. I'm going to take to win the Super Bowl. I'm going to go with Green Bay. You can get a 12 to 1 to win the Super Bowl. You look at the Chiefs, they're like 4 or 5 to 1. Again, just no value in that. So Green Bay 12 to 1 to win the Super Bowl. I like that bet. All aboard the Green Bay hype train this year. 
don't mess with an angry Aaron Rodgers after an offseason of hosting Jeopardy. That's what they always say. This is Rock Chuck Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Coming up next, let's further our NFL betting season preview. Go through some of the awards. This is RCST on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. So we did our NFL team season previews. Packers 12 to 1. Again, favorite bet though, Packers at 8 to 1 just to get the one seed in the NFC. Now let's get on to some of the awards that are going to be handed out. Um, first up would just naturally be the NFL MVP award. Now, as we talked about in the previous segment, there's a difference between doing a preview where we're just going to pick teams and pick who we think is going to win versus having the betting odds factoring in because there's sometimes when you're going to play out the value. So, like, you know, if I have a gun to my head and somebody says who's going to win NFL MVP, I'm going to ride with Patrick Mahomes, right? But Patrick Mahomes' odds are plus 450. Everybody else is 10 to 1 or higher. So, there's not a ton of value in the Patrick Mahomes one, which is why I'm going to go down the list. I mentioned with how good of a season Green Bay could have. So that makes me want to take Aaron Rodgers. That's the thing. Like, Aaron Rodgers won MVP last year, and he's double the odds of Patrick Mahomes. So I'm tempted to take Aaron Rodgers at 10-1, to 1, but still don't even love a 10-1. to 1. Josh Allen, 10-1. to 1, Russell Wilson, 14-1. to 1, Tom Brady, a 14-1. Lamar Jackson at 16-1 to 1 is very interesting because of the fact that now you lost all these players. If Lamar does lead this team to winning the division or making the playoffs, you're going to get that hype again. But it's really hard to win multiple MVPs. That's also why I'm not going Aaron Rodgers. Really hard to win back-to-back. -back. Not necessarily from his performance, but sometimes we just get tired of a guy. Like, you know, the narrative just plays out for kind of the new guy sometimes, which not necessarily how it should be, but... That is how it goes. Matthew Stafford at 6-1. to one. I feel like that's trendy. I do think he'll have a really good year with the Rams. But for him to win MVP with expectations the way they are, he's really got to go off, and they're going to probably have to get the one or the two seed in the NFC. I'll go down to Justin Herbert at 20-1. to one. You know, people are really high on the Chargers. Herbert was really good as a rookie. A lot better than I thought he was going to be. I didn't think he was going to be that great coming out of college. Turns out that I don't think he was utilized properly in college, but really good with the Chargers. I have the Chargers being the top wildcard team in the AFC, and if you're a wildcard team only because you're in the same division as the Chiefs, it's not going to get held against you that much. So Justin Herbert, a 20-1, to 1, he has the potential to be on a good team. You have to be on a good team to win this. You probably have to be a quarterback to win this, so that narrows it down a little bit, and I think he's just really good, and you combine all that with being able to put up a good statistical season which I think you will, I think there's good, good odds there. If I wasn't going with Justin Herbert at 20-1, to I'd probably go with either Rodgers at 10-1 to or maybe the Stafford one at 16-1, to but I'll go with Herbert at 20-1 to for the official pick there. Now, Offensive Player of the Year is a little bit different than MVP. A lot of times we see Offensive Player of the Year, it's almost like, hey, this is going to be the excuse since MVP never goes to a running back or wide receiver. If we have a receiver who has 1,700 receiving yards or we have a running back who has 1,800 rushing yards, this is the award for them. So it's a little more dangerous taking a quarterback in this award 
But the beauty of that is it actually does make Patrick Mahomes a more viable option. So instead of the MVP, where Patrick Mahomes is plus 450 and second is more than double the odds at 10 to 1 with Aaron Rodgers, in Offensive Player of the Year, Patrick Mahomes is plus 650 and Derrick Henry is 7 to 1. So not far behind. So because the value is a lot closer, I would take Patrick Mahomes in that regard. So give me Patrick Mahomes at plus 650 to win Offensive Player of the Year. But again, this is one that you might feel more comfortable taking guys who aren't quarterbacks, and I think you would have a fair case to do just that. Like, you could go down the list here and take, like, Najee Harris at, I don't know, 40-1 to if he has a great year for the Steelers and they have a really good season. Could he win Offensive Player of the Year, just not MVP? Yeah, it's possible. Justin Jefferson at 35-1. to Jonathan Taylor at 28-1. to Like, he might be the whole offense for the Colts, although Wentz seems like he's going to play in Week 1. So there are some good options here, but I'll go with Patrick Mahomes at plus 650. As far as Defensive Player of the Year, onto that side of the football. Aaron Donald, prohibitive favorite at 5-1, to one, and he wins it like every time. Even Miles Garrett, not far behind. He's plus 550. Chase Young at 8-1. to one. TJ Watt, a massive contract at 8-1. to one. If you want Joey Bosa at 12-1, Nick Bosa at 15-1, same with Khalil Mack. Those are all solid options, and that's where you need to start with this. It is in the same way that MVP typically goes to a quarterback. Most often, defensive player of the year goes to a defensive lineman. It's a lot easier to quantify and say that, yeah, this defensive lineman had a 20-sack season, that's why he deserves it, than it is to say for a corner, hey, he broke up nine passes and intercepted six. Like, Xavier Howard intercepted double-digit interceptions last year, and he didn't win Defensive Player of the Year. Now, it does happen for corners. Like, Stephon Gilmore won it a couple years ago. But for the most part, it is defensive linemen. So, if you want a value pick, there's a guy in the Chiefs' backyard, Chris Jones who looked really good in the preseason, move into defensive end role. There's an extra game in the season. If Chris Jones goes out there and puts up 17, 18 sacks, he's going to be right in that discussion. And for the Chiefs defense to be good, you might need him to do that. And you can get Chris Jones to win defensive player of the year at 50 to 1. That is a wonderful value pick. Again, Aaron Donald's 5 to 1. But do I think Aaron or Chris Jones should have 10 times the odds of Aaron Donald? No, I don't. Like, Aaron Donald will probably win it. But does he win it 10 times more than Chris Jones? I don't think so. So I'm going to go with Chris Jones at 50-1. to 1, Play for the big money in that award. Okay, on to the Rookie of the Year votes. We'll start with the Offensive Rookie of the Year. Trevor Lawrence, favorite, 4-1. to 1. The beauty of that is you know Trevor Lawrence is, like, going to be the guy all season long. This is another award where it's so much easier for a quarterback to win it, especially in a stacked quarterback field this year. So I wouldn't even veer from this. The only guys I would think of, you know, Najee Harris at 10-1, to 1, as I mentioned, he could be in store for a big load in that Steelers offense. Tyson Williams is very interesting now because he is probably the Ravens' starting running back. So it's 16-1 to 1 in an offense that you're going to get a lot of carries. That might be the one non-quarterback I would look at. Rondale Moore, if you want to sprinkle on it, 66 to 1 at receiver wouldn't be a bad pick either, but you're probably going to go with the quarterback. So it comes down to Trevor Lawrence. You feel like the most sustainable, consistent. Mac Jones with New England could win the most games of one of the rookies. Trey Lance could be really good, but how late into the season does he take over? We saw Justin Herbert take over in week two, surprisingly, 
and kind of have, you know, maybe further behind in his start to some of the other guys, but he still ended up winning it. Can Trey Lance take over by week two or week three? If so, I think he's a viable candidate, but I'm not going to bank on that. That's too much to ask for. Zach Wilson, you're on a really bad team. Not going to bet on that. Uh, to me, this is mostly between Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields outside of the sprinklings on a guy like Williams and Rondale Moore. Fields, it's the same question as Trey Lance. How soon are you going to start? Well, the Bears have a tough start to the season, including week one against the Rams. I think Andy Dalton gets beat up week one. I think by week two, Justin Fields starts at the latest by week three. I think Justin Fields is set up for more success right away, just statistically speaking, with what he has around him than Trevor Lawrence will be. So if there were even odds, I'd probably go Trevor Lawrence for the safe bet. But Trevor Lawrence, four to one. Justin Fields is almost double that at plus 750. I'm going to go Justin Fields for Offensive Rookie of the Year at plus 750. Defensive Rookie of the Year. I teased this when I was talking about the Buffalo Bills. You know, Micah Parsons is going to be making plays all over the field. and He has a chance to start up in a pretty big way tonight on a national game. He's plus 450. He's the favorite. If you go down a little bit, you can find Gregory Rousseau in it 20 to 1 odds. Gregory Rousseau was a early second round pick, I believe, of the Buffalo Bills. And he was supposed to be coming into the year like a possible top 10 pick. He's just 21 years old, has all kinds of potential. He's actually their late first, 30th pick overall. So excuse me on that. But he fell a little bit to him. And he was a guy who didn't play in this past season due to COVID. So that may have contributed to him falling a little bit. But before that, he was supposed to be a top 10 pick. And like I said, with the defensive player of the year votes, sometimes it's easier to quantify, hey, this guy had this impact because he had 12 sacks than it is, well, this guy was a linebacker and he averaged eight tackles a game versus the other linebacker averaged seven tackles a game. It's a little harder to distinguish. We don't view it that way. Rousseau's at 20 to one, so you're getting good odds. You're on a team who's going to be on a lot of big-time games, a winning team, and you're on a team whose defense wasn't very good last year and missed a lot of pass rushers. And Gregory Rousseau was really good in the preseason. So if he comes out, has a 10-11-12 sack performance this year, which I think is very much possible, and the Bills do win their division over an improved Patriots squad and seemingly ascending Dolphins squad, Gregory Rousseau is going to be in that discussion. So with the good odds of 20-1, to I'll take a flyer on him there. Going to Coach of the Year. This one's really tough. Brandon Staley was who I thought I was going to pick coming into this. That was before I saw the odds. But apparently, there's a reason why. Brandon Staley, the new Chargers head coach, is 10-1. to He is by far the favorite. Bill Belichick, 12-1. to Kyle Shanahan, 14-1. to All those would be good picks, but I feel like they're too obvious. So let's go a little further down. Brian Flores, at 16-1. to He's kind of been in that discussion the last couple years. Sometimes we get award fatigue with certain guys. Kevin Stefanski, he won it last year. Not going to win it again. Back-to-back years, he's 18-1. to Matt LaFleur at 18 to 1 is interesting. I have the Packers getting the one seed in the NFC. You do that again, you have three straight years where you're getting a first round bye in the playoffs. Okay. Yeah. You definitely deserve to be in that discussion again. So he'd be interesting at 18 to 1. Sean McVay at 20 to 1. We always talk about how this guy's like a wonderkind with coaching and Matt Stafford coming over. If Matt Stafford has his best season, it's going to be a two-way street. It's going to be, yeah, Matt Stafford brings so much to them than Jared Goff, but it's also going to be a, see, this is proof 
that the Lions wasted Matthew Stafford and look how good of a coach Sean McVay is. And if that all comes together, I mean, there's a real scenario that the Rams get like a top two seed in the NFC. So I like the potential of taking this with the Rams banking on a big season for Matt Stafford. Sean McVay at 20 to 1, you just get better odds than his former defensive coordinator with Brandon Staley at 10 to 1. Okay, the last one we got is the comeback player of the year. And this is a really good list. Dak Prescott had the bad leg injury. He starts up tonight against the Bucs. Joe Burrow who had the season-ending injury. Saquon Barkley, season-ender. Christian McCaffrey was out all year, minus a couple games. Carson Wentz. Nick Bosa. And then even Odell Beckham Jr. Derwin James. You even have then, and, and those that's like the category of guys who were injured. You have guys who maybe didn't play a season ago, like Damian Williams. You have Kyle Long. You have, and Damian Williams and Kyle Long are like 100 to 1, 150 to 1. Um, then you have the, the status of guys who maybe did play last year, but either had a bad year, or in a case like Jameis Winston, he was the backup for most of the season. You can get him at 10 to 1. I would go, I mean, the obvious bet is Dak Prescott at 2 to 1, but those odds are so low. Let's go to Christian McCaffrey, best running back in the game. Going to get a ton of attention from being the top fantasy running back if he stays healthy all year. You have really good receivers around him with DJ Moore, Robbie Anderson. You add in Terrence Marshall in the draft. Joe Brady, the offensive coordinator, knows what he's doing. Better quarterback play now, you would think, with Sam Darnold in the fold. Could be a good year for Christian McCaffrey. And, you know, if he goes for 2,500 all-purpose yards, yes, it's going to be tough to take it away from Dak with it where his leg was. But there's more value there. You have four times the odds of Christian McCaffrey to Dak Prescott. So I will take McCaffrey there. And that's not really a ward that I view it as, yeah, it's all dependent on being a quarterback like some of the other ones. That is your NFL season betting preview. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it.